The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Do you believe that children have the right to breathe mask-free or to go outside without the latest booster shots? What about the quote-unquote right to change their gender? Where do rights come from anyway? And why would you trust doctors to give you yours? Join the discussion this month at Unofficial Pediatrics, the Substack blog run by mainstream media's least favorite pediatrician, Dr. Adrian Gaty. Dr. Gaty was one of the first doctors in the USA to speak out against lockdowns, and he continues the fight for childhood innocence and well-being. If you are looking for a doctor who fears God more than he fears Fauci, then look to the second best four-letter word you'll hear today. It's not Z-U-B-Y, it's G-A-T-Y. Check out his blog, Unofficial Pediatrics, at gaty.substack.com. That's G-A-T-Y Subscribe today for free and join the battle as he challenges big pharma, big education, and a few more Goliaths along the way. One more time, that's gaty.substack.com. Now back to the podcast. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. What's up ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on an investigative journalist, very, very well known for his work with Dateline and the former show To Catch a Predator. And this is the one and only Chris Hansen. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Zuby. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. How about yourself? Excellent. Thank you very much. Glad to hear, man. Well, Chris, I know a lot of people know you and will be familiar with you, particularly in the USA, but all around the world. But for those who are not, can you give them a little brief intro to who you are? I've been a journalist um, on television for some 40 years, uh, done a lot of crime reporting in local news and at the network. And um, probably the most iconic franchise has been the Predator Investigations. And mm-hmm. we did the first one about 18 years ago where we partner with a uh, Um, an online watchdog group, at least in the beginning, posing as children, decoys posing as children online. 
and um, they merely exist. And we see if adults, predators, will approach them and try to set up a sexual liaison. And in fact, uh, over the last 18 years, some 500 of them have, and we continue these investigations. Now, I have a crime streaming network called True Blue. And on that uh, network, we have the new predator investigations, Takedown with Chris Hansen, a new um, crime news magazine called True Crime Nation, and uh, a lot of new crime documentaries on all kinds of different su subjects. And I also have a podcast called Predators I've Caught, where I go back over all the old cases and we delve into them. I immerse myself in them and talk about the cases and we find out where the guys are today, all these years after getting busted. What is it that first got you interested in getting involved in this whole murky world? Of the predators, I think what got me interested in it was the explosion of communication online. So many of these crimes targeting children were starting to be under control, you know, before the inter the advent of the internet, before all the chat rooms and the social media platforms. And then once this all came about, it became so much easier for adults uh, to approach children online. I mean, in the beginning of these investigations, Zuby, we merely had decoys in chat rooms on AOL and Yahoo. Well, today, there are so many social media platforms upon which adults can approach children, and it's so much more diffuse. So it's it's more of a difficult case to uh, situation to investigate because it's so diffuse and so widespread. And there is more of it going on now than ever before. During the pandemic, at the peak of the pandemic, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children uh, will tell you that cases of adults inappropriately contacting children online or sending inappropriate material to ch children rose like 900%. And so the best way I feel to protect children, to protect people from this sort of activity is to create awareness. And what we do in these investigations is take people inside the commission of a felony, essentially, and we show what the guy's been doing. We show the transcripts. I confront them. I try to get inside their mind. And we hear in some of these investigations the voices of victims. And I think when you, when you can get inside a predator's mind and hear the voices of the victims and take people inside the commission of the felony, you can better protect them from becoming victims of a predator down the road. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask how the impact on social media, especially with the explosion of it over the past 15 to 16 years, because when was it that the when was it that the series stopped airing? That was kind of just before. Well, we're doing it now. So, it, it you know, we've okay. taken breaks along the way. But it, we, the first investigation was in 2004 mm. and we did uh, several investigations up until 2008, took a break, came back in 2015. And now we're back doing them again now. Um, and, and the landscape has continued to change. We've had to change the way we do the investigations and to ensure that there's some sort of justice meted out. Now, anybody can go out and, and, and some vigilante groups do this and, and lure somebody who's uh, taking part in this activity and confront them. But we do it in a way where there is some sort of social justice, where, where the, the predator actually faces criminal prosecution. And I think that's an important component to this. In the very beginning, we merely had decoys in chat rooms and I had security, but no law enforcement involved. Mm -hmm. So these guys would leave. And some of the cases were prosecuted after the fact in the first two investigations, but law enforcement wasn't 
a part of it in a collaborative way. Today, we do this in collaboration with law enforcement, which ensures, you know, this level of social responsibility and, and a level of justice in these cases that I think is deserved. And even take it from a pure television production standpoint, you know, to see me confront somebody and have them walk off without facing any consequences is unfulfilling, mm -hmm. you know? So we need to, we need to, to make sure that these guys face the music and, and they do now and they have for some time. Yeah. So you mentioned, I think during the pandemic, a 900% increase in what specifically? In the inappropriate contact between adults and children and the transmission of inappropriate material from adults to children. So the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is tasked uh, by the government here in the United States to be the uh, recipient of reports filed by various social media platforms. So there's mandatory reporting from Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, all of them. They're supposed to report anything that they find or any reports that they get from users mm -hmm. to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So it's a pretty good, solid, reliable database for this sort of activity. And it's the best marker that I can find to track this. Because, you know, as you know, people ask all the time how many predators are online at any given time. We don't know is the yeah. honest answer. You just, you, there's no way to tell. You can estimate, it's obviously in the thousands, but worldwide, the internet's ubiquitous. We don't know. Yeah, I think with the rise of social media on multiple levels in society, it's helped and aided so many things, um, but that's both positive and, and negative, right? And I think well, that with this yeah, issue in particular, I do think that more and more people are becoming aware of it. I think even with some of the sort of high profile scandals that are going on and some of the conversations that are happening right now at this moment, it does seem that there is a greater awareness. But sometimes I wonder is it's often hard to tell in this Internet connected age if a problem is getting worse directly or if it's just that there is more awareness of it and more of an ability to disseminate information and to talk to people about it and see people's opinions and so on. So if you were to go back even to the, the 90s up until the 2020s, there are certain things where it can seem like, okay, this thing is going way up because it's so much more on your radar, but it can be hard to tell if it's actually going way up or you're just able to see it. So I'd be curious to know if you think that social media and having so many billions of people on social media is actually making the problem worse or if it's just that more people are able to see it. Well, I think it's both, Zuby. I think I think more people do see it because there's an increased uh, amount of conversation and dialogue about it. But with that, and in that same bandwidth, there's more opportunity to do it. And the police and sheriffs and federal investigators can't be everywhere. We can't be everywhere. And so the odds are that guys will get away with it. And and they know, the predators know, we're out there. In the latest investigation we did just a matter of weeks ago, we had guys in the chat rooms asking the decoys, is this a Chris Hansen deal? Is this a sheriff so-and-so deal? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the decoy says, well, I don't know who that is. Who are you talking about? And they show up anyway, in spite of their suspicions. And they recognize me in many cases. And where in past investigations, 
when these guys have recognized me, they've bolted. Now they almost know the script, if you will. They start answering the questions. They take the chair and they, they, they tell me either their excuses and they spin it however they want to spin it. They've thought about these excuses before doing this and getting caught. Or they just confess and say, this is why, this is my issue, and this is you know how my mind works. But even in some of the spaces you would think would be pretty safe, you know, there's still a risk there. We've got a story coming out in the next week or so on, on True Blue about a 12-year-old girl who was on Instagram and a guy from Florida started a conversation and was able to set up a meeting with her and convince her that it was okay to climb out her bedroom window and meet him in a church parking lot. He flew up from Florida for this and took her to a hotel room, sexually assaulted her. She went to the hospital the next day. The sheriff's department in mid-Michigan, Genesee County, got wind of this, went to the hotel, got the surveillance video, They were able to backtrack the communications on Instagram, the DMs, the texts, and they tracked him down to Florida where they arrested him. And during the interview with him, he confessed to doing this on at least two other occasions, occasions in two other states. Mm. And so you think your kid's safe on Instagram. What could go wrong? Well, potentially in the extreme, this is what can go wrong. So you have to have a conversation. You're not going to be very effective in demand reduction. I mean, I think there are treatment programs for some subset of these guys that works. And I've talked to therapists who do it and and they've had success. But the real front line here, I think, is to have a conversation realistically in an age appropriate manner from the very first time your child gets online and say, look, there are adults online who like to trick kids. Kids don't like Mm -hmm. to be tricked. And then as the child gets older and has more access to the internet, you have to ramp up that conversation. And I don't think it's a bad thing to use examples of stories that I do or that other journalists do or that appear on other shows because it does get kids' attention. And and that's your best defense is a good educated child. I hear that. I'm not a parent yet, so I often try not to be overly critical of parents, but I do think that giving a 12-year-old unfettered, unsupervised access to smartphones and social media is a terrible idea. I think 12 is way too young. And I know that there are people with, you know, eight and nine-year-olds and eight-year-olds and so on with unfettered access to all of these platforms. And honestly, I think that's a bad idea. I mean, as someone who spends a lot of time on social media myself, truly, I don't think that most adults are great at handling it and dealing with it, not just from, you know, that aspect of grooming and predators, but just, you know, people's mental well-being and ability to deal with trolls and deal with hate and deal with backlash and some of the content that's out there. I mean, there's so much of it. I mean, I would. Well, I I agree. And and, and to your point, and I think you're you're spot on here to your point, Zuby, kids watch what their parents and other adults in the house do. So if the parent is conducting themselves in a you know, jakey way online, the kids are going to take their cues from that. I mean, you have to lead by example here. And so if you're up at four in the morning doing something that looks suspicious, the kids are going to understand that and, and find it acceptable. So it's, you know, look, it's, it's a lot of responsibility. And, you know, a lot of kids will spend their entire lives online and never get propositioned by a predator. I get that. And you could argue the vast majority of adult on children's sexual assaults take place with somebody who is known to them 
you know, an incestual, uh, incestuous type of thing. But having said that, there is a lot of danger online, and not just from sexual predators, financial predators. Yes. There are all kinds of extortion plots out there, these sextortion plots, and, and we're working on a number of stories um, along those lines, and people who are, you know, selling puppies that don't exist online. I mean, it, it's, you just have to be very careful across the board. You know, it, if you don't know that person in real life, then you don't know them uh, just because you've met them online. You know, when I was a kid, parents said, don't talk to strangers. Well, that was great advice then. It's great advice now. The problem is the guy who is a stranger on Wednesday is so adept at grooming children that he won't be a stranger by Friday. And, and I see this when I do the podcast. We go back, the Predators I've Caught podcast, we go back over these old cases or previous cases. And when I do the investigations, you know, it's a little bit on the fly. I mean, I have transcripts, I have information, I have background, but, you know, you've got a lot going on at the same time. So in the podcast, I go back over these cases and I immerse myself in them. And I see this pattern of grooming in the transcripts. It's almost like some of these guys go to a class someplace online to learn how to break down the traditional barriers in society between adults and children. It's, I mean, it's stunning yes. how it follows a template. On that topic, I think in the last two years, something that's really risen up in the public consciousness, I mean, you just used the term grooming, and I'm sure you're aware that that term grooming, groomers, is a conversation that's been, uh, you know, that's a word that's been popping up a lot recently, even sure. with some of the things that are being taught in schools, some of the things that adults are promoting, targeting children and youth online, whether it's with certain ideologies or things about sex, things about gender, things about sexuality, things that are not age appropriate. Um, and well, there's the recruitment for terrorists, you know, yeah, all that, kinds of stuff that too. Yeah, that that too. But I, I think a lot of the grooming behavior that people are calling out is stuff that's actually happening within institutions that are typically trusted and respected, right? You've got all these weird videos of, of teachers on, on TikTok and out there who are teaching kids about really age inappropriate things and who are promoting it as if it's some sort of greater good. So what are your thoughts on that whole phenomenon? Because it's not something that I think, I mean, when I was in school, you know, a couple decades ago, it's not something that people were overly concerned about. But I think well, imagine, imagine how it is for me, you know, yeah. I, I mean, you know, my kids are now 31 to 21. And so they're out of the danger zone, except for, you know, the financial predator stuff, I suppose, or, or any other scams that adults are, are potentially targeted by. But, you know, my first computer class was as a, a senior in high school, where we had to program Fortran cards to run through what passed then as a computer, we had no idea how this would affect our lives. Or even as a journalist in the early days, you know, we didn't, why would you ever need a computer? We got a typewriter. So, you know, this has been a, a very steep learning curve for, for those of us of a certain age and certain generation. And it has opened up all kinds of access, not just with predators and children or predators and victims, but just being able to expose children to any individual's ideology or value set that you may not share. And so again, it comes down to the parent as a gatekeeper, I think. And you can do this without being overly protective or onerous or 
you know, not letting your kid have a computer or a, a smartphone, but you do have to have a constant dialogue, I think. And, and I'm not pretending to be, you know, parent of the year or anything like that. I, it's just common sense stuff based upon what I've seen and having interviewed parents whose children have fallen prey to this stuff and children who have fallen prey. I remember in the early predator investigations, 15, 16 years ago, we had a group of a dozen fourth, fifth graders, uh, maybe a little older, maybe, maybe sixth, seventh graders, middle schoolers. And I had them all on risers sitting there. And I said, how many of you show of hands have been approached by an adult online? You didn't know. And it made you feel uncomfortable. Almost every one of those dozen kids raised their hand. Mm. And then I said, another show of hands, how many of you told your parents? Uh, one hand goes up out of the dozen. So they didn't want to upset their parents by telling them what had happened to them online. And so the message is you have to say, look, if somebody does something that makes you uncomfortable, you need to tell me. And again, it goes back to this best line of defense is a good education. Mm -hmm. And at least if something makes them feel uncomfortable or strange, they will feel okay telling you about it. And then you can take action. Why do you think those children... Why do you think such a small percentage of them would have felt comfortable telling their... Because they were afraid. They, I asked that question. And that's an excellent question, Zubi. I asked that question. They said they were afraid they were going to, their parents were going to take the internet away. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's actually a really interesting reply. That was telling to me. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't, I, I hope the situation has improved since I've done that interview. I suppose it'd be uh, great to go back and do it. Uh, about four or five years ago, we did a a piece for Crime Watch Daily when I was uh, hosting that show and reporting for it, a syndicated crime show. And we had um, a therapist in one room asking kids questions. And I was in the next room with a monitor with their parents listening to the answers. Mm -hmm. And there was a shocking disconnect between what the parents thought the kids would say and what the kids actually said. And it was an eye-opening experiment because it, it was a lesson to parents that, you know, look, everybody's busy. Everybody's got their own drama, but you need to sit down and say, look, these, these guys don't have any barriers, barriers anymore. It doesn't matter if you lock your door. It doesn't matter whether you have a security camera. They can get right through on the computer and you better be aware and you better have that conversation. I know there, there are a lot of parents who listen to this podcast. So what practical precautions or advice would you give to a parent who's listening to this who is somewhat aware of this or deeply aware of it and is concerned about the online safety of their own children. Are there some practical steps that you'd explicitly recommend? There are, there's a number of, uh, there are a number of uh, software programs out there where you can monitor your kid's activity on the, on the cell phone or on the computer. If they give away, for instance, your home address, home phone numbers, it'll send a text to you. And, and that's all very easily available. But I think, you know, Beyond that, it goes back to what we were discussing before, Zuby, which is you just have to have this open line of communication. They need to feel that they're safe in coming to you and saying this happened. You need to feel confident enough in your parenting skills to say, look, there are people out there who will try to trick you. There are people out there who don't see the world like your mom and dad do, who have a different set of values, who might try to co-op you or take advantage of you in some way. And just because 
a guy or a gal online says they're, you know, a surfer dude or chick from San Diego and they're 15, 16 years old, doesn't mean that's who they are. They could be a fat 60 year old in his mother's basement wearing his underwear surrounded by empty pizza boxes. You know, you can be a little clever telling the story to get their attention. And in my experience, um, you know, that sort of thing resonates with kids as opposed, you know, you can get all the software, you can do all this stuff. I, I still think, you know, the software can break down, the software can be circumvented, all that stuff, people can get around it, there are workarounds. The best way to do it is to educate your kids and make sure they know that you're not going to punish them for coming to you and telling you that something weird happened online. I hear that. What are your thoughts, Chris, on this recent controversy with Balenciaga? I don't know how much you've looked into it, but what I've only on? looked at it superficially, Zuby. So I, I'm not an expert on it exactly, except that I've seen, you know, these advertising campaigns pop up occasionally over the years that are, you know, borderline exploitive, um, that, you know, seem to take advantage of children in one way or the other. Sometimes the over-sexualization of children goes back for, you know, decades. And I think there's a corporate citizen responsibility to this that we should go overboard not to exploit children in any way. Uh, and especially when it comes to human trafficking issues or, or the sexual exploitation of children or the uh, blackmailing of children. And it, 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 it just if, if you're going to make a judgment call, go to the side of being um, safe on it, because there's nothing good. I mean, you know, yeah, you generate a controversy. Potentially it adds to sales. I, I, it makes me uncomfortable mm -hmm. when corporations do that. Yeah, I, I think there are some concerning lines being blurred between children and adults in recent years. I think I know certainly certainly growing up, regardless of where you are, you know, which society in the West, there was always a clear hard line, a delineation between children and adults when it comes to laws, when it comes to ability to consent, when it comes yeah. to when you should be when it's appropriate to be exposed to certain types of information or imagery and so on and from various areas both institutional and sort of social and cultural i'm seeing this line being increasingly blurred and i find that deeply concerning people are now saying and advocating that children can consent to things that typically only adults would be able to so the line is being blurred there. I think when it comes to online imagery, children have access to, you know, you can just type in, type in a website and uh, tick a box saying that you're over 18, you don't need to. And, you know, children have access to all of this stuff that they didn't have before. And I'm also seeing a disturbing increase in the mainstream media in particular to and it sounds so crazy to say it, but to, to normalize pedophilia or to get people to, sim to, to sympathize with it. There's a play that just came out recently, which the New York, was it, the New York Times was, was raving about. Uh, the whole play is about pedophilia. And, you know, it's, oh, you know, should we have sympathy for these people? I'm sure you've heard the term MAP or minor sure. attracted person, which is supposed to somewhat destigmatize this whole idea. So I'm seeing this amalgamation of all these different things happening and... 
I find it, I find it very concerning. I'm not sure how much it's on most people's radar because it's so uncomfortable to talk about. And most people don't want to connect these certain dots, but I'm starting to see, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of this over the years. And it well, I think, like, I think, I think Zuby, that's valid. I mean, yeah. in, in historically, if you look back at NAMBLA, the North American Man Boy Love Association, which is a group that would try to normalize pedophilia between adult males and, and, and boys, the FBI had been investigating that, that uh, group for years and had pretty much, you know, run it down to nothing until the Internet. And suddenly it's going strong and they've got these cruises and they're, they're trying to, to um, you know, uh, rekindle this offensive organization. And when you talk about maps, I mean, that you can't normalize something that is just absolutely wrong on every level. It's legally wrong. It's morally reprehensible. There, a child is a child, and a child needs to be protected in our society from a lot of different things. First and foremost, violence and sexual violence. And then when it comes to all the things we know about labor and, and, and making sure that child has health care and education. So any attempt to normalize the relationship between a child and adult is just wrong. It's offensive. It's illegal. Consent cannot be given at that early age. And so whether you convince somebody to say yes or not has no bearing on whether or not this is ethical or appropriate. It's just it's wrong on every level. And, and I know what you're talking about, the MAPS thing. And, and I've talked to therapists, psychiatrists who go into prisons and they interview predators and pedophiles. And what they will say routinely when there's, there's nothing for them to lose, when they're being absolutely honest with a guy like, um, you know, Michael Berg, who works for the U.S. Marshal's office, they will tell them two things. One, the time they got caught was not their first time offending. They had offended two, three, four other times. Two, mm -hmm. almost universally, there's a link between the viewing of child pornography and offending. Mm -hmm. and, and those are things you just can't get around. So when you talk about, is it better for a predator pedophile to view child pornography and get his fix there as opposed to going out and offending? No, because the viewing leads to offending. And we know that. The viewing of child pornography, every time an image of child pornography is viewed, it's another incident of abusing that child. Mm -hmm. of exploiting that child in that image. So there's no way, I think, that you can normalize it or justify it or rationalize it or certainly legalize it because it's, 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 it's not even a slippery slope. It's a wall that should be built there to protect children. And I'm adamant about that. And I think most everybody agrees with me. I mean, I mean, I think these people barking about maps and we need to understand this. It's a, such a tiny minority percentage of the human population. They tend to get attention because I think it's just so awful and offensive to even try to make that argument. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that it's a it's a tiny minority, but something that we've certainly seen in the last few decades is that a well it gets it gets attention because it's 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 outrageous and offensive and and mm -hmm. that rises to the level of attention and also if people are trying to argue this they should be exposed i think i mean i'm not going to give them you know a ton of attention i don't think it deserves it it's it's wrong you know yeah. i don't think they should give them a chance to even try to normalize this absolutely 
What about this situation that seems to be happening in the U.S. in particular states? I've noticed California for one. I'm assuming it exists in other states as well. But people being let off very, very lightly or being released early from prison for some of these crimes. Well, I think we've seen that change a little bit in the early investigations we did, especially in the first one we did in in California, or one of the ones we did in California, in uh, Long Beach, particularly, the local judge there sort of viewed this as a, you know, a TV sting operation or a reality show. So the guys who were caught in that particular sting mostly received a slap on the wrist, probation and registration as a sex offender. And very few of those guys in that investigation served time. And it led to a a big sense of outrage across the country. I testified in front of Congress shortly thereafter. And, you know, I had senators, U.S. senators in the hallways of, uh, of the state, the U.S. Capitol asking, what do we do? And, and, and my advice then, and not that I'm a you know legal constitutional scholar by any means, but my advice was that, you know, each case is different. You can't necessarily have one policy across the board, but you do have to have basic minimum levels of punishment to create deterrence. Mm -hmm. And so if a guy is, is arguing that, well, it was a decoy, it wasn't a regular kid. Well, guess what? If I wasn't there, if my crew wasn't there, if law enforcement wasn't there and a child was there, there would have been a sexual assault. I know this based upon the reading of the transcripts. So yeah, it was on television. Yeah, it was a sting operation, but that doesn't mean a crime wouldn't have been committed. And there are statistics that will suggest that every time a guy is caught in one of these stings, you are preventing exponentially, uh, you know, perhaps dozens of other kids from getting exposed to this mm -hmm. because their arrest is a deterrence. Now, there are People always ask, you know, who these guys are, and I'm not a therapist, and I'm not necessarily qualified to tell you exactly the psychiatric background. But I, from my experience, you have three categories. You've got the hardcore heavy hitters, these guys who would be doing this with or without the Internet. They're going to be the bad little league coach, the, the guy who seeks out vulnerable children at the movie theater, the food court at the mall, wherever children gather. And those guys can't be fixed. They should be locked up and monitored. Mm -hmm. There's a younger group of guys who are opportunists, who are socially inept, who have a hard time developing an intimate relationship. And they are in their late teens, early 20s, and they look for vulnerable boys and girls. And they figure, well, if something works out, it's a Romeo-Juliet thing. And at some point, we'll all be in the right age group, and there's not an issue there. It's illegal. It's wrong. But those guys can probably get some sort of minor punishment and counseling and not reoffend. And then there's this interesting group in the middle, you know, the doctors we've seen, the clergymen we've seen, the cops we've seen, who have a desire to have a sexual relationship with a child, but probably wouldn't act on it without the Internet, the access, the anonymity, the addictive nature of it. And those guys are the more vexing category. Um because it, it's, it's more complicated. They don't have the word predator tattooed across their forehead. You know, they could be the guy standing next to you at the grocery store on a Saturday morning. And that's, that's the real challenge of this. And we want one size fits all answers to this problem. And there's certainly 
a lot of good work going on in this area on the part of therapists. And I've talked to these people and I've seen amazing stories of how people turn their lives around who engage in this sort of activity. But yet it's not a very glamorous part of medicine, is it? If you spend $200,000 on medical school, do you want to be on Park Avenue as a plastic surgeon? Or do you want to be going into federal prisons with Michael Burke interviewing hardcore sex offenders? I get it. Yeah. I don't know that I have the answer to it, but I certainly see the complex nature of the, the vexing issue. For sure. Chris, you've spent decades at this point exploring and exposing and raising awareness of arguably the darkest, some of the darkest and most heinous types of crimes and perversions out there. How has that affected you psycho psychologically? How have you, how do you deal with that? It's a good question. Uh, you know, I'm okay with it. I, I, I guess I'm sure there have been moments in my life where, you know, it got to me and I didn't even realize it got to me. And maybe I engaged in, you know, not the healthiest form of dealing with it. But, you know, having done it now for 40 years, I have it in perspective. I realize that it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a calling, you know, to do this sort of journalism, this sort of um, reporting. And I think I have it, you know, in perspective. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I was sort of made to do this in a way. Um, and, and I'm comfortable with the material. I mean, I, I can set it aside. I can use humor when it's appropriate and sometimes inappropriate privately <laughs> to deal with it. But, you know, I'm okay with it. And, and I think it's therapeutic to go back over some of these past cases in the podcast. I think it's 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 helpful to me to talk about some of these issues in a setting like this with somebody who gets it, who's bright and intelligent, who can share some of the information that normally wouldn't be shared in a in a day to day story on True Blue or in the podcast or in the True Crime Nation show. And so one of the reasons why I enjoy being on a show like this is I get to talk about these things. And I think I hope that people take something away from it in an extended conversation that helps them in their life, you know, that, 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 you know, helps them to protect their children. And one of the things that I find most fulfilling, and this happens routinely, no matter where I'm at is, is I'll be out socially someplace and, and my wife and I'll be having dinner and we'll be leaving and somebody say, Hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And sometimes it's just to take a selfie or do whatever. But more often than not, it's somebody who wants to just say, Hey, something happened to me as a kid. And one of the reasons I was able to cope with it and one of the reasons I was able to get some sense of justice and healing was watching your shows where you jam these guys up and it created a sense of justice for me. Thank you. And to me, that's the greatest reward, honestly. It's helping somebody who's been through it or helping somebody avoid going through it. And it, it, it's, it's, it's true whether it's for sex predators in these investigations or whether it's, you know, a financial predator or any other sort of crime, a murder, or, you know, we're doing stories on the, the situation at the Club Q, the situation in Idaho, and, you know, crimes all across the world. And I think it does create an awareness that hopefully prevents other people from becoming a victim. I hear that. It must have given you a deep insight into human psychology on a level that most people don't get access to both. Well, I think sometimes too deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say what, what are, what's uh, what are some what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned about 
humanity or human beings as a, as a species over the course of these decades? Well, I, I think so. there, are, there, there are some people who just don't have the, the empathy gene in, in, who are so focused on themselves and their own desires. Uh, people may, who may have been victimized themselves and, and blur this line. Uh, people who have been impacted by the internet in a way that, that makes them susceptible to, this, to behaving this way. I mean, it's a whole combination of things. I don't think there's one single strand that runs through these criminals, except that they, for whatever combination of reasons, and I think the internet sometimes plays into this, are able to blur the line between fantasy and reality and not have impulse control to keep them from acting out. And I think I don't want to blame the, every crime in the world on the Internet, but, you know, that plays a significant role in a lot of what I see. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, look, it's, it's these stories. People always ask, why do you think uh, crime reporting and, and is so important and, and so popular? And I said, these stories are as old as the Bible. It's good versus evil. It's not going away. Mm -hmm. We just do it in, in, I think, the most entertaining way to... to show people what's going on and how to prevent from getting sucked into something like this. Yeah. I think one of the big problems with the internet and social media is that it makes it easier for people to dehumanize one another. I, I think you just hit it right. I th think you just hit it right on the head. It's not a real kid. It's, it's a picture of somebody who will gratify me sexually and they start to lose track of the impact that could have on a human being. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I see this across the board. Obviously, we're talking about the the deepest depths of it. But even just, you know, if you're spending time on Twitter or on Instagram or Facebook, I think especially Twitter, you're just seeing these little little avatars. And oftentimes people don't have, you know, it's just a username and you can't see reactions and responses you can't hear vocal tone it's very no it, and again the, the, you you lose the sense of empathy people just automatically attack something because they can generate a misinformation campaign or they can they can they can get off on having this power and not face consequences and twitter especially is that way and i and i, I i'm not sure why and how it got there and and you know, because they don't police the bots or haven't historically as much. And, and there are so many sock accounts that people can use in, as little armies to, to attack their perceived enemies. But it's, you know, it's, it's also become, look, in many ways, the central repository for the world's mental masturbation without any governance. <laughs> and so you That's want, true. you know, you want um, everybody to be able to express themselves but you need to have your own personal filter to to protect yourself from it too, because, yeah. because like you say, there it's the dehumanization of communication in many ways, which yeah. has led to people thinking it's acceptable to commit this sort of crime, these sort yeah. of crimes. I spend a ton of time on Twitter. Um, a lot of people know me know me through Twitter, and an observation that I have with it, which I don't think most people make or have thought of. I think people are aware of, yeah, you've got the avatars, you've got a lot of bots, people with fake names, you can't hear vocal tone, um, you can't see body language, all those things lead to dehumanization. I think another thing that leads to the major empathy gap, though, with Twitter is that conversations happen backwards. If you meet someone in real life, you always start with commonality. You start with right. 
greetings and building rapport and finding out the things that you have in common. Hey, what's your name? Where are you from? You know, what are you doing? Like you start with all of that stuff. You don't start with a hot political take or a super oh, yeah. controversial take on religion or on this or on that. Whereas on Twitter, because it's just this chamber where you literally go in and you just say whatever you want about any topic and then you get back the responses. I think that all of that rapport building is is missed out on. And so oftentimes the your first exposure to someone is something that's very contentious or controversial or aggressive or outrage inducing and so on. And so you have a natural reaction to just, you know, react with with very little empathy and then very quickly. And then you have the performative aspect because it's so public and very quickly people are just, you know, attacking and speaking to each other in a way that, you know, for sure they wouldn't speak like that to each other no in real they wouldn't life. have the guts to do it in person I, I agree i mean i think you hit it right on the head and and i don't i'm not sure exactly why twitter is more that way than instagram but i do know that if i can take the same post right whether it's a nice picture of uh my wife and me or various family members together or whether it's you know uh, a um, teaser tape for the new predator investigations on true blue um what I put on Instagram will be so much more positive in its reaction. Chris Hansen's this, Chris Hansen's that, this is great, the goat, blah, blah, blah. Then on Twitter, well, you ought to make it free. Why do we have to, you know, it's, it's a constant stream of criticism and complaint and it complaints more so yeah. than, than Instagram. And I, I, I guess it's, I think you hit it on the head. Um, I think, you know, there's, there are perhaps less restrictions. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I know the, the, the bot situation on Twitter um, is, is horrifying because I've had to have my people, you know, remove thousands and thousands of accounts. I blocked them over the years that were not real people that were generated attack bots by uh, people who have been the targets of one of my investigations, for instance, mm. and, and, you know, or behind a misinformation campaign. I mean, you see a lot of it over the years and it's made me less active on Twitter than some of the other social media platforms because of it. I just don't, you know, why put up with the grief? Why expose yeah. a nice picture of your family to the bots and, you know, mm -hmm. creeps? Yeah, I have not I have two more theories on why that, why that dis difference may exist between say Twitter and Instagram. I think number one is just that there's more anonymity on Twitter. Yeah. Um, on, on Instagram, people tend to use their real names more and real images more. And then another one is I think that um, I think that when I think people when they're angry or agitated or kind of seeking a fight, I think they're more likely to log into Twitter. I think that people log in to the, the apps, different apps in different moods. Right. So I think when people go on to Instagram, they tend to be leaning in a more positive mood. Whereas when people log into Twitter, they're logging in there specifically because they're already a bit agitated. They're kind of looking right. for something. They're, right. they're, they're looking for a fight a, a bit more. Right. I mean, Twitter's angry ants, you know, yeah. Yeah. to go at it. <laughs> Instagram it, it, you know, is more of a situation where you have people wanting to share their nice photos from Thanksgiving, perhaps, I guess, maybe. Yeah. But I, I think you're right. I think you hit it on the head. I think that's that's Twitter. Yeah. Tell me about the projects that you've got going on at the moment, Chris. So we launched um, a week ago from this conversation, the new crime streaming network, True Blue, which um, uh, along with my partner, Sean Reck of Transition Studio, who did the White Boy Rick documentary that's on Netflix and, and Murder in the Park and so many other documentaries. Um, 
is out now and, and that has all the new predator investigations and we've got about 20 of those already done and many more in the pipeline. We're also doing a great deal of, um, of um, long form crime documentaries. We have a case now going on this Tracy Hutsana, who's a master class con woman who's taken millions of dollars from people, including some high profile folks such as Jumana Kidd, um, a television personality, former wife of the NBA great Jason Kidd. And the way she was able to steal this money was by gaining the confidence of her victims, working for them, and then funneling millions of dollars, which she then put into restaurants and created this allegedly successful business. So we infiltrate this world of hers and we chase her down and hold her accountable. And she's, she's going to go to prison at some point soon. And, um, and it makes her very fascinating look into this world of how somebody is able to get away with this for so long. We also have on True Blue, um, we're going to be premiering in the next week or so, True Crime Nation, which is a news magazine geared towards crime. And so we'll be covering not just investigative topics, but crime stories of interest and breaking news. So uh, we've got a piece up uh, involving the uh, Club Q shooting in Colorado. We're working on a piece out of Idaho and Moscow. The university students were sadly killed there. The woman from North Carolina who was killed in, in Mexico. All these compelling stories uh, and, and many more to come that we have access to in a way nobody else does because of you know, my 40 years of crime reporting and the ability to talk to people and, and, and have confidence. Um, so we have all that. We have the podcast, Predators I've Caught, and that's out now. And and we go back over the the previous predator cases, as I mentioned. And, and that's a fascinating look at, at um, you know, these guys and where they are today. And it's resonated with people in, in a great way. So it's a busy time. I think the, the streaming world is, is the best place for me the last two documentaries I did before um, this were on Discovery Plus, which is a great network, the Peter Nygaard investigation, the Onision in real life investigation. But it takes a long time to do those in their traditional format. You, you have A meetings and B meetings and green light meetings. And, and now in this format, we move very quickly. I call Sean Rack, tell him I need a crew on Thursday, and I have my DP, director of photography, on Thursday shooting a story. What used to take months now takes weeks or days, mm -hmm. and we turn this material around. And in the streaming world, you know, it doesn't have to be 42 minutes. It can be 26 minutes. It can be an hour and 10 minutes. It can be what we decide that it's worth. So we've taken the same enterprising approach to creating the content and applied it to the distribution of the content and it seems to be resonating very quickly with the, the people who want the content. And, and it's very gratifying because we put a lot of time and work and creativity and I think talent into it. And, and it's, a, it's the perfect place for it. So we're very excited to get it started. That sounds really positive. Chris, how do you find and strike the right balance between journalism and entertainment? It's a good question. And, and I think I've done it mostly right. Obviously, you know, especially in the predator investigations, there are some undeniably humorous moments. There are some moments where you play to the camera because you know that it will, it will resonate with viewers. You try not to overdo it. You try to have respect for the, the, um, the venue. 
but it, it it it's something that has become a part of pop culture. You know, I always tell people when my oldest kids are now in the business, were in high school, they went to high school with with kids whose dads did a lot of cool stuff, mm. sports figures, Wall Street guys, lawyers. But when South Park did a Chris Hansen to catch a predator episode, suddenly I was the <laughs> coolest dad. You know, <laughs> so you know you use that positive energy or that energy in a positive way so yes it's become a part of pop culture did i plan on that to happen no i thought we'd do predator investigations once twice maybe three times and that would be it nobody would ever show up but that's not how it went down so what do you do now you take that energy and you put it in a positive place you know that because of this you've got three generations now of followers and people who care about what I do. And so you, you do the kind of, you create the kind of content that will benefit people in all those, in all three generations. And you have a great audience and a great support system. So it allows you to continue to do this work. I also have access. If I show up in a, in, in a small town someplace or a big town someplace, the law enforcement people know who I am because of the predator investigation. They are, fans and followers. So I'm more apt to get the inside scoop on something than, than many other journalists would be. So I channel it, I think, into a very positive uh, way uh, to, to gain access, to have an audience for the content. And, and look, sometimes, sometimes you don't always know what the impact is going to be of a certain franchise. And, and I'd be lying to you if I said I knew that the Predator franchise would become what it had because I didn't know. I was just trying to do an interesting story that would help people, that would expose bad guys in a way I thought I could do in an interesting fashion. And I didn't want every interview to look the same. So I would, you know, try and be, and I still do, uh, try to be creative with each and every guy and approach them differently. Anybody can jump out of a back room or the bushes and create 10 seconds of dramatic video. Mm -hmm. My job is to engage this guy or whoever it is in a conversation and get inside their head. And that's what I try to do. And whether it's a, a conversation with you on your program or whether it's a conversation with a, with a bad guy in a, in a sting operation setting, it's, it's, it's about getting inside their head. And, and generally speaking, it works. I mean, we had a guy in Polk County, Florida. It's an episode of the Predator investigation that's going to come out in the next week or so. And it was almost like a, a cross between a Silence of the Lambs moment and a fanboy moment. The guy had seen all the shows. He knew some of the guys who had been caught by name. And yet here he is caught trying to meet a 12-year-old girl for sex. And he goes into great and graphic detail as to why he did it for 30 minutes wow. and it's, it's 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 compelling television but it is when you know when he's giggling talking about it it's a silence i mean it's it's creepy mm. but it's informative it's interesting and it's certainly compelling i hear that what's it like seeing yourself uh represented or parodied <laughs> in a south park or the simpsons or hear yourself mentioned in a song you know you know, obviously there's a sense of flattery there, but but even in a dark or sarcastic fashion, um, I don't mind being parodied or pawned or, or, or poked fun at because 
at the end of the day, it raises awareness about a very serious issue. And, and again, it just creates an image of, uh, of, of somebody who can get access to these di different areas. And, and, and access in, in many ways is, is uh, currency for a guy like me. You know, if people won't talk to you, if they won't come on your show or they won't let you into their uh, police chief's office or their detective unit, it's, it's hard to get information. I mean, I can t sit there and talk for 30 minutes, but, but I need people uh, to talk to, you know, <laughs> and, and so, and so I, I use it all for my benefit. Um, it's flattering, of course. I mean, you know, I, I think I've been on family guy three times now <laughs> <You know? laughs> on the South park thing. You know, I, I did South park doesn't tell you, I mean, they're obviously very clever and creative fellows, but they don't tell you they're going to do you as, you know, Simpsons, they call you and say, well, you do the voice and you go into a studio in New York and you put the headsets on and you do your thing. You get a big box of Simpsons swag, and it's a lot of fun, you know, for the kids especially. <laughs> but South Park, I'm in on the West Coast on assignment, and one of my agent's representatives texts me and says, South Park is doing you tonight. It's pretty funny. I said, <laughs> okay, well, I'm three hours time change. I'll, I'll check it out when it comes on here. And then about 20 minutes later, he said, it's taken a bit of a dark turn. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. Chris, I want to respect your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And Zuby, it's my pleasure. Thanks done. for having me. I truly appreciate it. And thanks for uh, letting people know about True Blue. They can go to watchtrueblue.com. It's T-R-U-B-L-U. -U. The podcast is uh, Predators I've Caught with Chris Hansen. It's on all the platforms. And we're working really hard at all of it. And, and I think it's, it's really compelling material. So I'm excited. That's awesome. And uh, are you active on social media? Is there? Yeah. The best so I, at Twitter is at Chris Hansen. I'm on um, official Chris Hansen on, on um, Instagram. Have a seat with Chris Hansen on TikTok. Everybody's got to be on TikTok now. And um, I'm all over Facebook and uh, YouTube. Have a seat with Chris Hansen. We've got some um, unique content there, too. That's uh, pretty cool. People should check out. Awesome. Thanks so much, Chris, for coming on the show. All right, Zuby, thank you. Continued success. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang, y'all gonna remember the name. Y'all gonna remember the name. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.